Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. You're currently listening to the final conversation in a series produced in collaboration with Repeater Books. In this, the final episode, Marcus Gilroy Ware will be speaking with Whitney Phillips and Ryan M. Milner about media, news, the public sphere, and the broader social crises that have produced the feeling that it's all falling apart. Marcus Gilroy Ware is a writer, researcher, educator, and the author of two books, Filling the Void, Emotion, Capitalism, and Social Media, and more recently, After the Fact, The Truth About Fake News, both published by Repeater Books. He'll be speaking with Whitney Phillips and Ryan M. Milner, who are the co-authors of You Are Here, a field guide for navigating polarised speech, conspiracy theories, and our polluted media landscape. They both also co-authored The Ambivalent Internet, Mischief, Oddity, and Antagonism Online, both published by the MIT Press. Whitney is also an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Rhetorical Studies at Syracuse University, and the author of her own book, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, mapping the relationship between online trolling and mainstream culture. Whilst Ryan is an associate professor of communication at the College of Charleston and the author of The World Made Meme, Public Conversations and Participatory Media. So, with introductions done, I'll now hand over to Ryan, Whitney and Marcus. Well, hi, both of you. Hello. <laughs> nice to meet you both. Yeah, yeah. You too. yeah. This is really, this, I'm really excited about this conversation because there's so much overlap in our books. So this is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And um, these are very interesting times to be talking about these kinds of, of questions as you know, you've brought into your book very much so. And, and I've tried to do the same. Yeah. Interesting is one word. Exhausting. <laughs> and uh, Brittany horrifying. used the word interesting a lot in his very ambiguous way. Like, <laughs> oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, perfect. So, you know, maybe one way to sort of jump into the conversation is what would the elevator pitch of our respective books be? And what do we hope that the audience gets out of the books? That might be a good place to sort of ground because there is so much overlap. And so really figuring out like what is the main sort of thrust of each book seems like a good place for me to start if you guys are all right with that. Yeah, sounds good to me. Oh, grand. So why don't you go first? It's hard, isn't it? Because once you start trying to write about these things, you realize, or once you start even trying to sort of research and make a, make a product, you know, make a book, you have to decide what's in and what's out. And once you start doing that process, you realize what a you know big job it is even. Um, but I think my research question, if I go back to the very kind of beginning of this particular book, was really because I'm a non-journalist in a journalism department and I, I get very sort of impatient with the kind of positivist narratives around public sphere and information and free press and all this kind of stuff. I have to constantly push back against that. And so bringing a bit of kind of political economy from, from my kind of background in, into those sorts of uh, conversations, my research question really was, to what extent has the thing we usually call neoliberalism brought about the crisis of, of credibility and, and fake news and so forth? So that was a starting point. And then, you know, then suddenly you're talking about a lot of political science and a lot of cultural studies and very little actual kind of media stuff. And I note that your book is also incredibly wide ranging. I think our books have that in common if we look in slightly different places. 
I was just really kind of at war with positivism and at war with, oh, this just came out of nowhere and it's a technological phenomenon and all these <laughs> kinds of things. I wanted to respond to those because in my last book, I, I wrote about social media and, and kind of compulsive relationship we have to social media. And there was a lot there as well. And that came out just a few months after Trump was you know, in, in office. And there was a lot of the same kind of hand-wringing around technology there as well. And it occurred to me that, that the stories we tell about technology and their mediation, technologies and their mediation of, of our conversations about politics, the stories we tell about those technologies become part of the problem of misinformation itself and, and embody and represent the broader positivist myths that have led us to this pretty terrible state of affairs. So that's kind of what my book explores, really. Yeah, I mean, so we're our book is doing something similar, especially sort of thinking historically about mm-hmm. these problems that one of the sort of falsehoods that gets bandied about often is this idea that somehow this is like a Facebook problem or mm-hmm. this is a Donald Trump problem or this or is a, a problem. Yeah, that's a like Fox in, News problem. Right, right. right. Some media apparatus very recently made this issue an issue. And then, you know, in order to fix that problem, you then sort of turn to the technologies themselves, you turn to the media themselves, and that's going to be where we solve it. We figure out what to do about Facebook. We figure out how do we moderate content um, across various platforms, or how do we fact check our way out of the problem? And that I understand that impulse, but it also means that you're never really engaging with the sort of broader causes of what you're looking at. And the fact that many of the causes have nothing to do with technology or the problems of technology are emerging out of these underlying ideological, political, political, economic causes. And so for us, if we were to say, well, what is the book about? Okay, well, the book is about the Trump era. We're talking about what happened during the Trump era But besides that, I mean, yeah, we're looking at the rise of far-right conspiracy theories and all the other sort of fresh hell that has been part of our our lives here in the U.S. for the last four or five years. But besides that, we're more interested in the book in asking, how did we get a Trump presidency? And that means looking way beyond Donald Trump. Donald Trump is just a, he's a piece of the puzzle, but, but the rest of the puzzle is much more important. Absolutely. And I think but I really enjoyed, uh, particularly in the first um, and the third chapter, you're kind of asking, you know, and I'm doing this the same in the first chapter of my book, we're asking, like, where does the material come from for these problems, which are now so apparent on and associated with these uh, communications technologies that, you know, we've totally normalized and brought into our lives uh, in these ways. And actually, they're, they're also synonymous with these kinds of political problems. But where does the material come from? Mm-hmm. And right. Like, and how far down do we need to dig in order yeah. to start getting to the actual solutions? Mm. Well, because as long as we're looking at just the surface phenomena, it, dealing with the problematic tweets or dealing with the, the false and misleading information um, on other platforms, that's not, I and mean, we can fact check it until we're blue in the face. That's not going to actually get to the heart of things. So figuring out how to articulate that and figuring out how to talk about that so that also for us, so that it's more sort of personalized because mm-hmm. our book, so it's it's about the, the Trump era. I did that with scare quotes for listeners, yeah. but it's also about media literacy, but not to the extent that it's like, oh, here's how you fact check. Here's how you reverse image, image search. Here's how you do these things to wear special media literacy armor. It's more, we're concerned, and maybe you, you'd want to say a little bit about this, Ryan, how you situate people within the information ecosystem so that they understand how they connect to it. Yeah, that was a big goal that I know that that we had was to not just 
give a to-do list of these are ways that you you defend against all the falsehood and fake news and misinformation, disinformation that's out there. But instead, how do you think reflectively about your place within this broader political economy? How do you contribute to an information environment that is polluted, even if you are doing your best to not amplify bad things, to you know, be on the cause of the side of justice or, or truth or whatever, right? How are even our most banal and seemingly benign behaviors online part of the problem, right? If we are amplifying falsehood in the name of fact-checking that falsehood, then do the fact-checks work? Or are we just spreading the falsehood farther to people who are going to ignore our fact-checks anyway? And so that was a real thing that we we had to reckon with is the solutions seemed that we were hearing seemed so simple. Um, they seemed to be just this, you know, eat your vegetables kind of a thing, take your vitamins, right? Defend against these lies and you'll be good. But if that's the case, then why are we in the situation we're in, even with so many people, you know, fighting so vociferously for the truth? So, and I know, Marcus, you went through the same thing, right? The, the kind of long prehistory you, you do to start off the book is, it seems to me to be exactly that, right? Situating what seems to be a really current problem and a really micro-informational problem into this broader scope that is much more social, much more sociological, much, much more political, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I suppose it's a bit like what I said earlier, I said earlier but mm-hmm. it's not until you try and tell that story that you realize how multi-threaded, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that was the longest, for a long time, it was the longest chapter in my book. And I think shortly before I submitted my draft, I had about 7,000 words. Wow. And yeah. I had like the war in the Balkans and like all sorts <laughs> of crazy things in there. And trying to tie, I suppose, tell the European history of some of these things, but also obviously very mindful of the US as well. And one of the things I liked about your book is the kind of moments of self-reflection that you have sort of punctuated it with, which I didn't do as much of that, but I really appreciated that as a reader, um, that you have this kind of interest, slightly introspective places, just brief moments where you, you know, you, where you do that. I think that was, um, that was brave. But yeah, the story is so multi-threaded and, and, and so broad to try to explain, you know, I guess historians have to deal with this all the time, <laughs> right, you know, but yeah. it's like such a spaghetti, you know, spaghetti kind of, I don't know, it's just very tangled up. Well, yeah. yeah, that exact issue was why we decided to approach the conversations through this framework of ecological metaphors, because when you're talking about, you know, natural phenomena, you can't just, I mean, so this comes up in, in one of the chapters where we use the metaphor of hurricanes. You can't just point to a single gust of wind and say like, okay, well, that's a hurricane. No, a hurricane is the you know confluence of all these other factors, all these other energies, and to make sense of what to do as the storm approaches shore, you have to really think about all of these other things that may not seem immediately relevant to the storm. Like, for example, off the southeastern coast of the United States, a lot of the natural wetlands, the, the marshes have been raised and buildings have been built on top of what had been marshland. What that means is that when hurricanes hit, the marshes can't absorb the water, they can't absorb the flooding. And so then it becomes this catastrophe for coastal areas. It's due to the storm, but the storm itself is not the only thing to look at. And so for us, that's why the title of our book, You Are Here. I mean, we're really trying to get readers to triangulate where they're fitting within these very complicated conversations. And that includes to your point um, a minute ago about we had to do that for ourselves too, that we're not just sort of pointing our finger and saying, you all need to fact check better. It's more like we are all situated within this ecological system. And if we want to do anything about these problems, we've got to figure out where we're standing, 
what we're in relation with, and and how we can sort of rethink, reframe the problems in terms of these sort of ecological forces. And and that so our title is reflective of essentially it's the the argument in a nutshell. Um, but Marcus, I was curious. So how did you? I mean, so there's something as you as you note in the intro, I think, where there's something a little bit sort of self-reflexive in the title of your book because you're both calling attention to this term fake news, but you're also highlighting problems with that term. So how did you encapsulate or what were you trying to do through your choice of title and how does that reflect some of the embedded arguments in the book itself? Well, I mean, the, the title, to be honest with you, I mean, books are products, right? So, I mean, the title really was, it was a, a fortuitous double meaning that I sort of came across as with so many ideas in conversation with friends. And I thought, well, we're kind of after the fact in more than one sense. I was surprised to learn about, you know, as I was researching this, that the prevalence of, of the phrase fake news is very much something that came about after Donald Trump had already been elected. Right. In terms, if you look at the the kind of the frequency of of Google searches and things like that around um, that phrase, it wasn't necessarily already a, a major part of how we were thinking about these things. But it was how we tried to tell the story afterwards. Um, but also, you know, the kind of thing that we ended up calling post factual or whatever is the phenomenon that we can identify as having a much kind of longer origin. And there are various moments, you know, in, in the twentieth century where similar things. Uh, happened for different reasons. So I think I wanted to kind of just contrast those two things and and just really ask something. In a way, the book, my book is asking about the question of, of value. And I think in journalism circles, people have been uh, fretting for a long time about, you know, paywalls and the kind of financial problems of journalism and all those kinds of things. And I think that those are worthwhile conversations, but it always was strange to me that people didn't actually ask a few steps on from that. Why is it that people don't value journalism anymore. Journalism sort of has all these kinds of stories it tells about the, we are the purveyors of the truth, you know, we're the fourth estate, blah, blah, blah. But actually a social theorist would say, well, maybe people aren't, aren't valuing that. There's the cultural question around value and truth, which is already, you know, the ship has already sailed there in a way. So I wanted to kind of really trace that problem. And I felt that neoliberalism and the kind of reforms from the kind of late 70s through to now around Reagan and Thatcher, that was the sort of most significant shift in, in the question of value, really, that and the kind of immediate reorganizations after the Second World War. So I wanted those two moments to be kind of like political economic pivots in a way that would allow us to kind of ground kind of question of value and truth in a more recent historical sense. And the other thing, being avowedly left wing, is it really bothers me the way that there was a sort of proliferation of books after Trump was elected around, you know, how it was the left's fault because they had sort of unleashed this thing called postmodernism in the world. And as a result, relativism had meant that the truth had been destroyed. And I was like, we haven't had any power at all in the world since like 1974 or something. How could we possibly be responsible for this crisis? Um, so I kind of, I guess there's a telling of that story that I really wanted to be kind of woven in as well. Well, and that's, I mean, so the idea of crisis and trying to make sense of of, of unfolding crises, the election of, of Donald Trump in 2016 and Brexit and a bunch of different stuff. Um, and you mentioned Marine Le Pen too. 20, was that 27? That was 2017. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and so it's just the six- heading towards that again. Now, <laughs> so it's just this succession of challenges. I mean, not just challenges, but crises for multiple nations around the globe. But then, 
as we both were writing our book and as reflected in the books themselves, we have COVID. And so one of the things I was really curious about as I was reading, because you are engaging with COVID and a lot of the epistemological weirdnesses around COVID throughout the book. So it's not like you slap on, you know, an epilogue or whatever. And it's like, and then there was COVID. So I would love to hear a little bit more about how did COVID factor into your process? What was your timeline? What, like, <laughs> yeah. how, because writing a book during a pandemic about the pandemic is not, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it either. You have that, the great note at the beginning of your bibliography. It's like, God. these are as complete as they, they can be, but I sometimes couldn't get to the library because of, you know, strict national lockdown. So I was literally you know, locked out of my office because the whole campus was just locked down. And then I was just here in my apartment writing and every so often I'd be like, okay, yeah, this is book. I know roughly <laughs> what it is, but I need to go find the page number. And then you have this horrible feeling looking at the bookshelf and be like, wait, that's one wait. of the ones in the office. I was using that to write a lecture three months ago or whatever. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll be very honest with you. I um, was late with my book. I was supposed to hand it in the Christmas before the pandemic started and mm. repeater books are fantastic and very flexible. And, you know, so I, I was a few months late. And as a result, as a fortuitous result, <laughs> I was able to include the pandemic. So I was literally sat here writing, you know, the final bits of it as that was sort of unfolding from, well, I guess the, the first manuscript went to, in, on June 2nd. So everything up to June 2nd is, is kind of in, in the book there. And yeah, I mean, obviously writing about something like this is a moving target. So it's very difficult to, you know, you have to write in a way that kind of future proofs it, which is, you know, yeah. I saw you do that a little bit in the in the beginning as well. You tried to to sort of say, well, as we write, COVID is oh, is, uh -huh. yeah. Um, yeah, in the in the forward, which we forward, had yeah. to add because there was such a gap between when the book was finished and then when the book was published. Yeah, I mean, so when did you submit the final manuscript to the press? No more edits. Like you can't speak to anything ever again. September. In the book. September. Uh, okay. I think it's very so, a very early September, like September first, something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. And so then that was what month was the book then published? November 10th. Okay. Oh, oh, that's, that's wow. good. Yeah. But by this point, I was like editing the PDF. I was literally saying to, <laughs> to Josh, the very hardworking editor at Repeater, I was saying, can you just add a sentence on page 96? You know, like I want mm -hmm. to kind of say this or whatever, um, or change this statistic, you know? So that was, I'm really grateful to them that they were so flexible to work with me to allow it to come out just like a week after the election and have all of this kind of fresh stuff in it. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, so we had kind of a, and, and this is the second book that we've done, each of us have done with MIT, because our first books were both published with MIT. And I can't say enough good things about the people we've worked with and uh, all the editorial feedback and all of it has, has been amazing. And there just has been some challenges over the last year because of the timeline. I mean, things in the world happening so much faster yeah. than is really accommodatable by a typical sort of book publication timeline. So we, and Ryan, jump in if I'm getting any of these dates wrong. I think that we submitted our final, like we got the reader feedback over Christmas, I think before the pandemic yeah. in 2019. Yeah. And then we spent, you know, frazzled six weeks over the holidays, getting all of that put together. And then I think we submitted that and, and then we were going to get the proofs back or yeah. the, the first round of copy editing back. And that was, that came down to us like in March. Yeah. And so then we had another, however, just a short few week period where we would be able to make substantive changes because pagination wasn't an issue yet. 
And it was during that time that we went into lockdown. And in particular for me, I had just been exposed. I mean, this was like way in the early days where even the thought of a, you know, a fifth degree exposure or whatever felt like the scariest thing. And so I had had been potentially exposed and needed to go into lockdown about a week before the full national lockdown here. And, you know, I was so, this is really morbid and it speaks to what we've all gone through over the last year, but I was so worried that I might contract it and that I might end up on a ventilator that I was like, I have to work 18 hours a day to get these edits that deal with COVID and not retell any of the stories fundamentally, because we were lucky in that we were already telling a story that sort of marched us towards this moment. So we were more kind of updating chronology and expanding on some of the, the things that we were already seeing. But still, it was quite a lift to get that in the book at this late phase. And so it was like editing the initial round of copy edits and then crying all the time because I was sure I was about to, to die. I mean, honestly, like I, we didn't know. No, that it was, was terrifying the moment. It was yeah. so scary and so exhausting. And then to have all of the anti-mask protests and all of the COVID denialism in the U.S., Trump in March was like, oh, it's a liberal hoax or whatever. But then there was kind of a few week period where then Trump was the hero of COVID. And then COVID yeah. was like taken seriously for a very brief time. And then something shifted. And so mapping that and trying to account for that in the, in the book, it it was head spinning. Yeah, yeah. It was ebbs and, ebbs and flows. And I think that is, I mean, a layer of what the challenge was, both logistically and intellectually and emotionally. All right. So it's not like we were turning in books about, you know, the American Civil War or about Chaucer, right? We were writing books about conspiracy theories and about journalistic amplification and about this tension between communal values and neoliberal values and and how they lead to a broken information system or and, and all the problems with that. And so, yeah, I think in both of our cases, it was trying to write a book immediately relevant to COVID in the midst of COVID, but having to deal with all the book deadlines and just new example after new example, new thing to bring into the into the argument, trying to decide when to cut it, when not to cut it. And so, yeah, which is why we ended up with the eventually the Ford that we did, because that then came in November of 2020 when MIT Press said, okay, pagination is set, argument is set. Do you have any, what's your last word? We can give you two pages at the front. And so we wrote those two pages at the front uh, when we didn't know who was going to win the presidential election. <laughs> so, Definitely. There are all these kind of uncertainties, right? And you yeah. kind of, you've got to shift something. So what are you going to say? <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. I had to hedge my bets on that one as well. I sort of, then of course, then in hindsight, you feel like I, I should have said this, I should have said that. But what's so interesting in a way, I think, is that the, the pandemic and the forms of kind of culturally divisive or rather the ways that the pandemic was treated and, and the fact that that became culturally divisive more or less along the same political lines that we were already talking about in our books is kind of like further weight to the, the arguments that we have been trying to make, I think. Yeah, was there anything as you, so as you were finishing up in, in September and heading into the fall, was there anything that you encountered in those last few months of writing that surprised you or required you to reassess your argument? Or was it more an affirmation of all the things that you had been talking about and, and, and researching up till that point? You know, that's a really good question, but actually a very difficult one. Um, I think 
there probably were a couple of surprises, but you know, broadly speaking, I I feel like I took enough of a zoomed out approach that I could sort of more or less. I mean, the problem is like as we when you write about these things, the world is always worse than you think it is, right? <laughs> I mean, okay, Biden won. That was one nice surprise. After you know, I didn't think he was going to. I really didn't. But besides that, that was that was the only surprise really. Other, you know, otherwise it's it's always more or less just like a depressing confirmation of the various characterizations that you've made. You know, even like looking at it now. You know, and I'd love to talk to you guys more about this, like the way that all of these different things have come together, the way that kind of QAnon rose up kind of over the, the last few months, the way that that's joined together with the anti-maskers, the, with these kind of long-term conspiracy theories around liberals and Bill Gates and, and then the vaccination effort. And it's just really fascinating to kind of, I mean, you can talk about, one can talk about just conspiracy theories for hours, but I don't want to only do that, but I mean, there's just this threading together of all of these different things in, in a way that's just, it's remarkable, don't you think? It, it was, and it was really, I mean, so in my case, I was teaching a class on the 2020 election, two sections of it in the fall. And so I was drawing from a lot of stuff from the book. I mean, kind of, so we, again, our end point was like April or May of 2020. That was when we stopped adding things to the book. We got the opportunity to write the foreword, but part of what um, helped us think through the foreword was me figuring out what I was going to tell my class about what to expect heading into the election. Because we, you know, we didn't write the whole foreword like the day after the election. We knew we would be too exhausted, regardless of what happened. So we sort of started thinking about, okay, how would we encapsulate some of these additional trends or these shifts of the last few months? Like how are how are we going to frame that, um, regardless of what who wins? Because who wins is not going to be the determining factor of what the U.S. is going to be like. And so for me in my classes, trying to preface and prepare my students for what we knew was coming, which was this, what you just described, Marcus, this like conspiracy explosion of all of these threads of things kind of coming together all at once. And it was very clear that, especially given what Trump had been saying all throughout the summer, that he was going to, he was going to turn this, he was going to connect all of those threads through the issue of voter fraud and all the QAnon stuff and all the masking stuff and all this stuff that might have seemed somewhat disparate, all those energies were going to be directed, the sort of eye of Sauron was going to be on that. And so it was sort of, we watched, you could see it coming, you could feel it coming, you could feel the energy, but, and that's what made it so eerie. And, and so then, you know, trying to capture some of that in, in the forward, but also, I mean, we knew that that this that voter fraud was going to become the conspiracy theory that combined all of this. But I I don't know. Like Ryan, did you anticipate that the book that our book was going to line up so perfectly and terribly with with what ultimately ended up happening? Yeah, um, unfortunately, I, I kind of did. Like like Marcus said, you just get these kind of you know depressing confirmations. You're like, okay, yeah, it's because when you think about these issues as systemic um, and you see the same pattern kind of repeating itself over and over and over again, then it, it, it makes sense that the problems are not going to go away. Right. And it's not going to hinge on who gets elected U S president. And so even as we were writing that forward, 
in those days that turned into weeks where, where there was contestation about the results, we knew that the heart of the book was, was going to be one worth paying attention to um, and one that had lessons because these issues are so systemic, right? And the solutions aren't tied to any one platform or any one politician. Uh, they're tied to decades and sometimes even longer of, of political and, and, and sociological reality. Mm. And that's another benefit to taking the historical approach is that, you know, you, you then equip people with a manual for, for, for the future as well as yeah. making sense of how we got here because, you know, you've sort of, you've grounded everything. And I think, you, I mean, in your book, you guys have absolutely knocked it out of the park on that um, because I think there's things in there that will help people to understand uh, what's happening in America and then, you know, broad, more broadly, I guess, the West uh, for, for years to come. So we all are teachers. We're all educators. We all teach um, on on topics that are that are connected to what we're writing about. Um, I know that one thing that I've found in my teaching is that a lot of my students kind of come in wanting a manual that's quick fixes, that's easy solutions. They think, oh, my, my older relatives thinks that, think this, how do I fix that, right? Or what do I do about this misinformation online or, or, or those kind of things? And then you have to dive into much more complex, complicated, sociological, political uh, kind of explanations and the solutions therefore get more complicated. And so that's one thing that I'm constantly trying to do better and constantly wondering about is how do you teach to these issues? How do you take something that a lot of people think should be a pretty easy fix and and unpack the complexities to it, but still leave people with something practical they can do as individuals? That's something we really struggle with both in the book and then in our classrooms is how do you talk about a really big problem and explain verifiably that it's really big, but also leave people listening to you leave your students with something practical they can do to feel like they're they're making things a little better in their own lives and their lives of others. Yeah. And not just practical too, but also like, don't make them feel so despairing that they just to throw their hands up and give up. So, so how, yeah, like how have you in your classroom and even just thinking about the book as pedagogy, which it kind of is in ways, how did you navigate that Marcus? Like what was the tension that you, that you tried to walk? Well, in my classes, I try to just kind of give my students, I think the best thing you can give students, I'm sure you'll agree, is a, is a model, a, a methodology for making sense of the world, which they can then continue to adapt after they've left your class, right? So you just give them, like I try to teach them, you know, how to think in a joined up way, basically, and, you know, read this and connect that and look, always look back, always look forward, always look to other countries, always ask what's happening contemporaneously in the world, etc., and sort of it's just the best you can really hope for, because I I, uh, I don't really want to. There's a lot of scrutiny on lecturers uh, in the UK, and uh, there's a lot of stuff around like, you know, these left wing lecturers that are kind of turning our youth into completely brittle and, and fragile snowflakes and with their safe space and the rest of it. Not that I really care that much about what the press thinks. And in fact, I have a, a colleague, she and I have a sort of running bet about which one of us will get written up in the Daily Mail first. So I think we don't want to kind of stop like saying, do this or do that. And, I, you know, obviously you can, when we're on campus, normally you can have certain conversations with students where you can instigate. They want to start a society. They want to do something. You can kind of sponsor that and help them do that. Um, in an informal way, because I do feel like those of us who want to make the world better, institution building is one of the things we really have to focus on in the next um, decade or so. But as far as the book, I think, I, mean, I suppose in, in some ways it's similar. In fact, I wanted to ask you guys also about, about audience, but because I find that very difficult 
you sort of wrestle with like your intellectual heroes and imagine them tearing you down as you write, but then you also know that you're not writing for them necessarily. You're writing for a much broader public. But yeah, I think I think the the book is it was supposed to just be kind of fun to read, but also be a guide to help people kind of make sense of these problems. But I mean, one of the frustrations I have is media is so segmented so like I didn't want to only write for a left-wing audience and I know that that's a very slippery slope I really didn't want to just say hey here's all those assumptions that we can make okay let's go on with rehashing all of the same things you know like it, there has to be a way of, of t- talking beyond that and especially since some of these kinds of phenomena in the media that we've been talking about are to do with people's anger and their distrust and their suspicion first and foremost as political impulses and then they get pulled in a left-wing or a right-wing direction often in a sort of slightly muddled way you can speak to that you can never i don't want to like agree to disagree about sort of hate or whatever but i think that there are certain things that you can speak to that maybe kind of can pull people into a different way of approaching the things that they're rightly mad about so i think that was one of the other things that i was trying to do but I noticed you also kind of explicitly addressed the reader and said, look, if you, you know, from, from a different part of the political spectrum, we're glad you're here. Who was your audience that you had in mind? Well, what do you think, Ryan? I mean, like we we have actively, so our previous book um, to this one that we co-wrote, we always try to aim for a... I mean, obviously some academics will read it and that's cool when they do, but also like people when it comes to these kinds of issues, issues of information, issues of sort of play online, it's an area where every single person who goes on the internet has thoughts about and experiences with. And so we want to be able to bring more voices into the conversation. And so for the previous book, it really was, how can we write a book that the average person online is going to have some elements of it resonate with them, that they can actually feel like they're part of the conversation, that they have smart things to say because they do, they have these experiences. But with this book, I mean, when did we start having the audience conversation, Ryan? Do you remember? So fairly early on. And yeah, it had a, a couple different vectors to it, I guess, right? There was the vector of, you know, are we only talking to people who align with us politically as progressives? Or are we are we talking to a broader audience? We came to citizens of good faith is what we were mm-hmm. after there, right? So if, if you have genuinely, earnestly conservative leanings, but you also want, uh, you know, a social discourse built on justice, built on, built on equity, then, then you're a citizen of good faith, right? Versus uh, citizens who seek to sow chaos and discord and keep people down and play on grievances for their own profit, right? So, so we had that kind of argument. We're not going to betray our values or tamp down our values, but we're going to speak to citizens of, of all citizens of good faith. And then there was a question of, of precision or a level of, you know, theoretical depth, right? Is the audience going to be primarily academic? Is it going to be graduate students? And for that, yeah, really early on, we decided we wanted to speak to pretty general audiences. I know that we, one one thing we constantly do is we, we ask the question, okay, would our moms be able to understand this? When we do a mom <laughs> test. Our moms are very smart. Our They're moms smart are amazing. people, Mine but they too. are, they are not... <laughs> But they're not scholars, right? And so smart people who aren't scholars, people who are interested in these ideas, but haven't had graduate school, haven't read Heidegger, don't know Bakhtin or Foucault or whoever, right? How do you bring those ideas? We had a whole big conversation because we implicitly kind of used a little bit of Bruno Latour's actor network theory. (laughs) And in earlier drafts, that was much more explicit use of Latour's actor network theory. And we had to have conversations, okay, but how do we honor the ideas? What goes into footnotes? And we hope that we ended up creating a 
book that can speak to a wide range of people, um, but very, very particularly, we want to speak to to uh, any and all citizens who are interested in a good faith effort to make these issues better. I think that's also a big reason, and this is something that that our books share, right, is that we we use different storytelling mechanisms, right? That it's not just kind of an erudite outline of theory or even um, always 100% written in, you know, scholarly argument for with claims and evidence and that kind of thing, right? We bring in stories, we bring in metaphors. I know, Marcus, this is something that that you do in yours, right? A lot of kind of like personal anecdotes that work as parables or fables or those kind of things that that can exemplify these, these more complex things. So yeah, and and that's not a it's not a function of saying like we've got to find a way to dumb it down because no, again, no, right. average average folks are like very smart, especially about the things in their own lives. It's more about approaching audience as a question of inclusiveness. I mean, are yeah. we do we risk alienating potential contributors to this discourse by using terminology that if explained in the right way, they would totally understand and be able to use, but maybe they've never they've never heard that word before. And sometimes if people encounter certain words, they mistakenly think, well, I must not be smart enough for this. And we really wanted to write a book that made very clear, no, you're definitely smart enough for this. And so, yeah, storytelling was a big part of that. But the the point you asked, Marcus, about how do you avoid like just speaking to the to the left? It, one of the things that came up as we were writing this book, it, and and it on on paper and in theory, this idea of people of good faith, we just want you know the people who want to do do right by others and who care about preserving democracy, whatever. That the problem with that in practice, and especially that's become really clear um, post. 2020 is that many people who we might be inclined to designate as as people, citizens of bad faith, regard themselves as citizens of good faith, that they really do. They're coming from this perspective where from their vantage point, they're trying to help. They're trying to push back against forces that they find oppressive and damaging and potentially even evil, depending on who you're talking to. And so bridging that gap, um, is extraordinarily difficult, even in a book like ours, where we were really trying to not, I mean, we, we, we told the truth about racism. We told the truth about Donald Trump, but we also were not actively, we were really trying hard not to antagonize someone just for being conservative. But even then, even in doing that, there were going to be a lot of people who might encounter our book and just say like, what this like they're, they don't understand where I'm coming from. They are, they run counter to my belief systems. My ears are closed. And that's the risk. And that's the, that's the thing I think we have to figure out moving forward. All of us, how do we have these conversations? Maybe it's not possible to have in a book. Maybe those conversations need to be in neighborhoods individually at the grassroots level, but it seems like figuring out how to bridge that gap is so critical. And that's where uh, teaching too becomes really interesting because I don't know about you, um, Marcus, but in my classes, you know, there was a range of ideologies in the classroom. You know, I had some outright sort of Trump supporters and I had a lot of students who were kind of conservative leaning and I had some people who didn't really know. And then I had some kind of center left folks. And then I had some very sort of far left folks, but figuring out how do you broker a conversation in a classroom where you have those dynamics, that's kind of a microcosm of what we want to try to do. So in your own teaching, how did you, how did you approach that? Did you run into any kinds of challenges with people who were just prepared to have their ears closed to what you were saying? No, actually I'm, I'm very lucky. So in my teaching, I don't, 
I don't really have to deal with that. But I remember having a conversation with a, a professor at Amherst a couple of summers ago, and he was saying how angry his students always are and how careful he has to be. And I was saying, mm-hmm. actually, I have the exact opposite feeling where I'm always trying to make my students more angry and kind of wake <laughs> them up to a certain kind of political agency. So no, I mean, my students are a very receptive and appreciative audience uh, for the most part. But I think the other thing that um, maybe a difference here is that I'm not writing about or teaching things that are actually my academic training. So my my degrees are in law and in linguistics, and I've sort of self-taught essentially my way into this this discipline. And so I'm writing kind of maybe maybe some level. I'm writing for for the people because I'm one of them. You know what I mean? I don't. I haven't had the opportunity um, of that sort of. I mean, obviously, when you have to teach things, as you know, you end up having to teach all sorts of things that we don't know about, and therefore we end up learning about them. But it's sort of it, it's been a rather unusual path for me. So I feel like. I've got a strong sense of solidarity with my class, you know, with my students, because I know what it's like to have to learn. I was probably reading the same text the week before they were. And similarly, I think with, with, you know, with the reader. But the other thing I wanted to say just quickly to come back to is the sense of like, actually the closing of ears is so much a part of the overall problem. So it's interesting. I mean, I'm writing a sort of doctorate in hindsight about these works now that I, my two books is that we're sort of putting into practice the same theorizing we're doing about the, the topic in the main, right? We're thinking about these questions of public sphere and conversation and politics, but we're also writing in a way that tries to address that. Mm-hmm. And so it was, I thought it was very interesting the way you used the, the phrase um, citizens of good faith, because I was thinking, well, actually, in terms of when we think about what's happened to say the truth, the truth in a way, in terms of its current usage, is sort of reduced to a question of faith in a slightly different sense, an almost religious-like sense of what you know and what you don't. I'm sure none of us want to get into the philosophy of knowledge particularly, but (laughs) but there is a way in which that kind of is a bit like faith. And so citizens of good faith, for me, had this kind of secondary meaning that was a bit like, well, what do you have faith in and which of the kind of institutions and systems of equivalence and so forth mm-hmm. that, that hold up society are the things you still put that faith in, you know, which ideals mm-hmm. are the other things you, you know, and I guess that comes back to what I said about the question of value, you know. Well, I mean, so that that's a really interesting and I think a good place to kind of maybe tie up the, the conversation a bit. So thinking of these challenges, so I will go out on a limb and say that Ryan and I have not solved the problem. No. Um, the, pr- yeah. the problem is <laughs> I can still, say that definitively. I mean, yeah. Definitively. I mean, so what I think that we, what I hope that we were able to accomplish in this book was to articulate what the problems are and how we got here. And you do that in your book too, Marcus, really well, sort of historicizing and taking a broader view of this is not just about Facebook people, but now that we, each of us, each group of us has, has done that. What, where does the research go next? Like, what are you, Marcus, what kinds of questions will you be asking based on this research, based what you, based on what you've learned, based on what COVID has taught you, where do you go next with your, with your thinking here? Well, that's a really interesting question. I promised many loved ones I would never write another book again (laughs) after the success of this one. And yet I'm already thinking about those exact questions. And I think for me, one of the because, you know, if you're a media theorist, I'm sure you guys have the same, even though we know and we've said in our work, it's actually a political problem and it's a historical problem and all the rest of it, people still want media answers. So I think I'm going to be taking a you know, running jump at attacking the question of, of media effects from a slightly different perspective and thinking about, you know, some of the other work that you've done on, on memes and things like that and, and many other scholars and thinking about how we can tie all of that together into sort of theorization of the idea of influence and what that means and how we can, you know, not weaponize, but how we can use that future to make, it's not enough on its own, 
but it can be something. It can be one useful ingredient to really be able to operationalize that. And I'm also planning to actually set up an institution that's devoted to creating and publishing research for the people specifically rather than for other academics. So that's another kind of more practical thing that I'm, I'm planning to do. What about you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the point of for the people is really is really interesting. So right now, one of the things we're doing um, is Ryan and I are, are thinking about how we would translate you are here for a young adult audience. Oh. Um, and we're sort of working on that. And, and because we really have been concerned about pedagogy in the class, what happens in the classroom, and not just the classroom, but the classroom is a unique environment where you the whole idea is to learn and the whole idea is to have sort of structured conversations that could be a place where we could start to engage with some of the underlying big scary questions of value and of faith and all of those things and you know solutions that just focus on Facebook like we've got to figure out what to do about Facebook I guess but my concern and and in the discussions that Ryan and I have had it's sort of okay well what do we do about our K through 12 classrooms what do we do to encourage conversations there that get to the heart of some of these issues related to neoliberalism and the, the mm. rise of the far-right media ecosystem and all of the actual root causes of what we're dealing with? So thinking about media literacy from a story-centered perspective, how might that be integrated into classrooms? And again, the classroom is just one area. I also, we've talked about how this might work in faith communities within other sort of localized grassroots um, areas where people can dig into some of these issues. But classrooms are more structured. Um, mm -hmm. Classrooms, it's just a little bit easier to broker some of these conversations. But I want to talk about nine-year-olds. I don't mm -hmm. want to talk about Facebook. And that's sort of, that's where I am. Did you want to add anything to that, Ryan, or other sort of additional final thoughts? Yeah, I think that the reason we want to go there the reason that we're exploring stuff about pedagogy and 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 the more social stuff is that is that we see a lot of the the platform specific or or even the information specific solutions as being very much cutting off the branches instead of the the trunk instead of the roots right we need to get to those sociological we need to get to those ideological we need to get to the, the frames uh, that are that are the heart of some of these problems, right? That conspiracy theorizing doesn't just start when you go down a Facebook rabbit hole and the hatred and bigotry doesn't just start when you end up in some Discord server. Different media elements, whether they're mass media or new media, can definitely amplify and definitely can pull people in and they're definitely worth paying attention to. But the the ideological elements, we think, are are so much more fundamental and so much harder to figure out. And so we want to dive into figuring out those elements and helping people figure out those elements. And that in the final, final point, I mean, the thing that, that your book does really well, Marcus, that I really appreciated was just saying, we also have to deal basically with capitalism. Like we yeah, have right. to deal with, with some of these underlying forces that are bringing, you know, our problems are not a bug. They are a feature of the system. So yeah. we have to fundamentally rethink what the system is and what we are willing to tolerate in our systems. And until we're willing to do that and really ask those hard questions, including about our own complicity, then nothing is going to be solved and it's just going to be whack-a-mole until the end of time. And so there has to be fundamental structural economic disruption, which then, of course, is a very hard sell. But you know, your focus uh, on that in your book, I thought was really well done and really sort of consistently argued throughout. So thank you for calling attention to that <laughs> very difficult right. structural issue. But I think that that's, that's got to be the root of it. So right. 
Thank you for saying so. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I wish we could go on and... and you know. I know. Well, the next time you... When you have your next book and when we have our next book, we'll do this again and then we'll talk about what we've... Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Well, you... I mean, you did a great job and this is hard work to do and it's exhausting. So I hope that you're enjoying so much deserved rest. And it was great to chat to you about, about this work. Likewise, congratulations to both of you on an excellent book, which I really enjoyed reading. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast and thank you to Whitney, Ryan and Marcus for that great discussion. If you'd like to hear more from the MIT Press Podcast, make sure you subscribe. And before we finish, I'd just like to say thank you to Samantha Doyle, who edits and mixes the podcast, and Kristen Galano, who produced the soundtrack. Thank you and goodbye.